Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Adibus Podcast. Simon Lesha here with you. Great to have you back. And I'm joined by a very special guest in studio, as it were, although to call this a studio is maybe pushing it, but uh, it does the job. I'm uh, very pleased to be joined by Adam Lata, who is a Principal Solution Architect here at Amazon Web Services. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thank you, Simon. So great to be here, and thank you for inviting me. It's taken five years to get here, I have to say, Simon. I, uh, I landed at my, my five-year mark, my five-year wow. anniversary next week. Congratulations. It's taken five years, so we should have some words after. <laughs> <laughs> is that the gating item now that we're on the podcast? Five years. Absolutely, yeah. So obviously I'm here to stay, so it's, it's safe to get me on the program. Yeah, but thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. It is good to have you here because uh, we're going to talk about a topic that uh, deserves some some detailed uh, or deep dive, basically, which is the, the developer experience and how to make the most of it on Absolutely. AWS. But before we launch into that, maybe tell us a bit about the Adam Lata story, just so people understand where you're coming from and why you're so passionate about this topic. Sure. Look, as I mentioned, I, I uh, have been on staff now for five years. But before that, I was working uh, as a software developer and then eventually CTO of a company that delivered media via satellites and eventually via terrestrially. And so I had a lot to do with designing and implementing the distributed data system, uh, the user experience, um, a lot to do with media and uh, all that uh, video codecs and all that sort of stuff. Um, so a lot of experience in dealing with things like concurrency and asynchronous decoupled systems. So that set me up really well to be uh, coming into the cloud. So um, uh, a few years after uh, I started doing that, I realized that uh, it was time for another challenge and I discovered this thing called cloud. And uh, having a really close look at AWS, I decided I really needed to get me some of that cloud. So uh, um, I did a couple of uh, production releases in the cloud, and that really sealed the deal for me. I realized that this is where I wanted to be and uh, came to AWS and was lucky enough to, uh, to get the job. Um, so I started off as a generalist solutions architect. I did that for a couple of years, and uh, given my background as a developer, I thought, uh, wouldn't it be great if I could focus on the developer experience and helping other developers who may not have had the experience that I've had understand how to leverage the cloud tools and processes and patterns and practices that you need to develop highly distributed um, available applications um, on a cloud platform. Um, and so, again, I was lucky enough to, to land the role of a, a developer specialist solutions architect. And so for the past couple of years... I've been really focusing on helping developers understand the uh, the nuts and bolts of the service offerings that we have, and not just in the uh, DevOps space, but also how to use some of the uh, the services that we have to build real applications in the cloud. So lots of conferences and um, and events and things like the Sydney Summit, of course, uh, the uh, Dev Lounge series that I run, and uh, many other things. So just getting in front of uh, customers, uh, letting them hear the story, and also hearing from them. Uh, their pain points, uh, what they would like to see the platform do, and feeding that back into our service teams, which is absolute gold for us. As you know, Simon, at mm. AWS, we prioritise our development based on our customer needs. So uh, really great position to be in to, to hear it in both directions um, from our customers. Yeah, that feedback loop is uh, super important. And uh, I think one of the things that's been certainly the hallmark of your work and the work you've been championing here for customers at AWS is, is conferences with code. Um, you know, code has to be... Uh, the central part of any of your presentations, demonstrations, the dev lounge experience, etc. This is not uh, death by PowerPoint. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's let's let's see the code and let's talk about the code, etc. And and Absolutely. I think one of the interesting things is as part of this is really you've had to tackle things from two dimensions. One is you know what are all the bits and pieces that a developer might want to use from an architectural standpoint in building a system, but then there's also the whole developer experience itself. So mm -hmm. you know, as as 
developers. And yes, in my deep dark past, I did do COBOL development plus Java development plus, plus, plus. Um, we, we are very passionate and attached to our development environment. You know, we like a certain IDE or a certain editor. We have long and passionate arguments about text versus spaces. Uh, we, we have uh, – don't look at me like that. <laughs> uh, we, yeah, we, we're very much bound to how we like things to work in an efficiency standpoint – which also can make it challenging to then change your workflow to suit new modalities, et cetera. And I know you've spent a lot of time on this. So maybe let's dive in and talk about uh, if I'm a developer and I want to develop either for cloud in a cloud native way or I'm taking maybe a, 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 a I don't want to use the word legacy, a, a, a pre-existing application. Classic. Yeah, classic, classic exactly. A classic application and I want to deploy it on the cloud and bring into that development tool chain. Where do I start? How, how do I look at this? That's a really good question, Simon, and it really does depend on the experience that you have uh, already. So if you're coming to the cloud and you are already practicing uh, DevOps, uh, such as using CICD and, and uh, maybe one of our, our partner uh, solutions like Jenkins and the Atlassian Suite and TeamCity and all those great tools, you may want to just pick those up and bring them to AWS. So there are no rules about which tool you need to use. And as you mentioned before, developers love to use the ID they're comfortable with. And we, we want to embrace that. So if you're familiar with the tooling that you already have, you can run that on EC2, no problem. And there are, are many partner solutions. But what you might want to do, though, is take advantage of um, some of the great advanced uh, advancements that we've had in AWS in the last couple of years in the DevOps space. And that is to go cloud native with these tools. So I guess if you think about um, the sort of things that you need to do in order to deliver um, quality software, you need to be thinking about uh, the languages that you use. You need to be thinking about the uh, the ease at which you can check your code into a, a safe source code repository that's always going to be available whenever you need it. You need to be able to think about the build phase and the complexities of uh, testing the, the software to, to make sure that the, the quality is there. And then, of course, the deployment phase. And deployment's actually really hard, especially in a distributed environment. You may have one machine you're deploying to or 10,000 machines, depending on the size of your, your application. So you really need to think about all of those individual components. And while there are tools out there that, that really help and, and you are uh, probably familiar with those tools, embracing the cloud native tools means that a lot of the heavy lifting just goes away. Yeah, yeah. You just get up and running fast. And I think that's one of the been one of the challenges of being a developer is, you know, when, when someone gives you a new project, it's like first spend, first week figuring out tool chain, development tools, go down a dead end, come back out of dead end. Yep. Yak shaving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, old friend yak shaving. Yeah. Yeah. Break, you have to, break your Mac, fix your Mac. <laughs> <laughs> you really have to think, though, that you're going to be doing new things in new ways and you're mm. going to be doing things you're familiar with in new ways and yeah. you're going to be doing different things in different ways. Okay, yeah. whatever the permutations <laughs> are. Um, but you need to be prepared for change. Yes, you um, sort of got to build that into the process. That, that said, though, the, the, the generalised tool chain of, of dev test run from a build perspective, is actually pretty familiar. Like even if you spin back to to the seventies, you know, it's it's the same process. It is different technologies, yep. uh, different speeds, yep. but the same. So maybe let's let's deconstruct it from the very base. Let's start maybe with, um, you know. The, the languages, the SDKs, let's let's really yeah. go and we'll just build step by step. Yeah, sure. I, I guess that's the best way to, 
to start is uh, right at the very start, which is source code. And one of the great things about AWS is, again, we, we don't want to force you to use a particular way of working or a particular language. Um, so we have SDKs in all the popular languages like Node, JavaScript, C Sharp, Java, PHP, um, Ruby, Go, um, and, and several more. And also uh, in the mobile and web space, so Android, iOS, React Native, uh, and so on. So we've really got you covered there. And there's a lot of advancements going on, especially in the .NET Core space. Um, I am, as you know, Simon, um, and don't look at me like that. Um, I am a big fan of .NET. You are. Um, .NET Core is is really awesome. I, I love what's what's happening in that space. Um, and we've just released a a new um, identity provider for .NET Core. Um, it's in preview at the moment, but also a an extension library in .NET Core for Cognito authentication. Now, traditionally, Cognito has been a little difficult to use in the C Sharp space, mm-hmm. um, and we heard the feedback from our customers, and we have iterated there, and we've We've released this extension library and the um, and the identity provider in preview. Um, and I played with it the other day. Um, it's a new world, Simon. I, I used Visual Studio on my Mac to build a uh, a test a, a server to server authentication piece using the Cognito authentication extension library, and it just worked. And it was really simple. Um, and there I am sitting on my Mac building .NET and deploying it into uh, into containers. What a time to be alive. Isn't it, isn't it, just, <laughs> isn't it just? I'm living my best life and I'm still clinging to C Sharp. Um, well, that's the thing is, you, you know, use the use the language that makes sense to you. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You want to be productive at all times. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and, and just on that though, if you want to use multiple languages, and I'm a big fan of Polyglot, so especially if you're moving to a microservices environment, uh, which you, you probably are. Uh, you may have your traditional landscape where that you're, you're doing lift and shift, uh, bringing your monolithic applications to the cloud, but you really want to think about um, cutting those applications up into manageable pieces for deployment and also for availability and all those other good things we'll talk about a little bit later. But in that case, maybe using the same language for all of those microservices is not the right approach. And that's one of the great things about having all those SDKs available for you to use the language that, that makes sense to yeah. you. And just on those SDKs, I mean, they do help you get up and running quick. So so for example, in, in, in my kit bag of late, it's been more uh, Python, JavaScript, a bit of Node from time to time, Ruby probably a couple of years back, sort of gone away from that for, for various reasons. And what's always stayed the same is I just know I grab the relevant language supported AWS SDK and I can do the things. So I can do the yeah. S3 interaction. I can do DynamoDB. Yeah. None of that changes. It does the credentials for me. It does it securely, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. It just saves you a heap of time. And a lot of the times you go with the language that's got enough samples on it that uh, allow you to get the job. <laughs> Very true. So, you know, you go straight to the uh, the interwebs and do a quick search. And if you find a solution and the code looks okay, then that's a great thing about microservices. You've yeah. invested a short, a small amount of time. Uh, if it doesn't work out, you haven't bet the farm on, on a particular approach. So you touched on, you know, working on your laptop, getting work done. And that's, that's the thing that most developers are very passionate about you know, mm, absolutely we're, and we're not going to talk whether it's the year of the linux desktop today <laughs> uh but what we are going to talk about is the the idea is the the the, the tool set that people can choose to use and yep. how do we make them more productive yeah so again uh, developers really have it's almost a religious argument about language but it's even more uh about uh, ideas uh there are some awesome ideas out there and and uh, we have had toolkit 
plugin toolkits for Eclipse and Visual Studio for a while now. But in reInvent last year, we announced the AWS toolkits for PyCharm, IntelliJ, and Visual Studio Code. Um, and so they're really great because they allow you to use the ID that you want, but also enhances your productivity because it gives you things like local um, serverless, local testing of serverless functions, some blueprints and boilerplate code for getting a new project up and running really quickly, which is great because the best practices are built in there. Um, and also, if you really um, prefer, you can interact with AWS resources directly in the IDE rather than having to thunk out to the console or, or use um, scripting if you prefer. So it's great to give you that, that visual view. Um, one of the great things, of course, is the ability to do step three debugging now. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know many d developers that are not fans of being able to set breakpoints. Uh, there are some. I have had some conversations with some. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the fact that you can set a breakpoint and actually um, inspect the values in the call stack um, is, is really a productive, uh, very productive for um, finding bugs and, and uh, testing your code. Um, and being able to do that in the ID of choice is, is absolute gold. Yeah. Um, and also the, the toolkits allow you to generate event sources. So if you're doing a, an async synchronous um, decoupled application, you might be sending messages between the components using um, SNS, for example. Well, in order to test that uh, while you're debugging, you need to generate the SNS payload. So there are various ways you can do that, but now there's a, a button to press in the IDE to generate you a, a like a hello world payload. So mm -hmm. again, all those pr productivity um, enhancements are, are really getting you up and running quickly. It's the fundamentals that really make the difference to things like, you know, linting, code completion, etc. I mean, it sounds quote unquote easy or obvious, but it's it's that sort of stuff that is We've just got painstaking. Enough to do, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't want to find that missing uh, parentheses uh, buried deep in the code. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or you've managed to mix tabs and spaces in your Python code and there. it just will not accept it. I'm counting the number of times you mentioned that, Simon. <laughs> but we also have the AWS Cloud9 IDE. So if um, you know if you're looking around for a different experience, I mean mm. one, one of the one of the things about the Cloud9 approach is that everything is running already in AWS. And what it means is that you're creating Credentials are automatically managed. Uh, the internet speed between your IDE and all the services that you might be using is incredibly fast and reliable. And all that's coming back to your browser is uh, the pixels or the, the updates. Mm -hmm. And what that means then is that you are executing in the context of the cloud, which makes you really, really productive because it's fast. Um, being able to uh, check in your, your, your code, uh, run a quick test, check in your code. Obviously, you do a feature branch, Simon. Don't of course, oh, naturally, yeah. absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but being able to do that all in the context of the cloud means that you don't need anything installed on your local laptop, which means all those dependencies, all those problems go away. And it also means that you could have many, many different IDEs because they're all backed by EC2 or you mm. could choose to bring your own machine if you, if you prefer. Um, but they're backed by EC2 and when you shut them down, you can bring them back up at an, another stage. So you can have a, 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 a specific IDE per project Absolutely. versus trying to kind of shoehorn lots of projects. Yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. And we've all been in DLL hell. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure that still exists anymore, but I'm, I'm sure it well, does. Now there's, um, I think uh, plug-in hell and extension hell <laughs> yeah. and VM hell and yeah. Ruby yeah, hell. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, And Python path hell. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, there, there are um, very um, uh, real reasons why that would make a lot of sense um, from a productivity perspective as well. So, And you can collaborate in that environment too, can't yeah, you? Yeah, it's really cool because um, there's a plugin available um, that allows you to collaborate between Visual Studio Code and, and um, uh, Cloud9 IDE. Um, I'm just going to do a call out to Ian McKay. Um, it's called Live Sync for AWS Cloud9. Um, have a look for it in the extension library for Cloud, uh, for bigger pardon, for uh, Visual Studio Code. Uh, but it allows you to collaborate then between uh, multiple users who are using the Cloud9 IDE in, in various locations at the mm -hmm. same time, but also somebody who's using Visual Studio Code. So again, ah, that's, that's a that's combination a, because you, yeah. in Cloud9, you can. 
natively collaborate. You this have. lets you have different ideas natively collaborating. Absolutely, yeah. So again, we're, we're um, really thrilled about this extension because it means that you can bring the idea of choice and you're not forcing somebody to change the way they work, but they can still collaborate. And that pair programming, I don't know, Simon, have you ever done that where you just can't uh, figure out yeah. what is going on yep. and you just sometimes need to talk to the duck? Yep, um, talk to the duck on your desk yep. um, or Adam Latter, whichever, whichever is closer. <laughs> or whoever, whoever responds and then collaborate yeah. with them and they can see exactly what you're doing. I, I think it's absolute gold. I think using the right idea at the right time makes makes a lot of sense. And um, can, I, can I share with you a dirty little secret? Tell this me is something. probably you know, just between you and I. Okay is that there are times where I'm doing a very quick Lambda function and I will go into the Lambda console and see if I can build what I need just using Boto3 and what's built in with Python because then I don't have to set up anything. I'm not sure whether I should be proud of you. <laughs> I think I'm causing more trouble for myself by doing it that way. But it is usually, if you know, sometimes you just want to bang out something really quick and just say, could I do this? Yeah, absolutely. you can do it. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually pretty featured these days. It's interesting what it, they've done. Yeah, yeah. look, it is. Um, and I'm not recommending you, this for production look, in any way, shape, or form. I'm not judging Simon. I'm just observing. But there are <laughs> there are many ways that you can skin that cat, and uh, if that works for you, then that's fantastic. And that's the reason why the console is there for you. Exactly. If that's, if that's how you choose to work, then that's great. I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> so so once you've written some code, um, you know, just you just save it to uh, your local drive, don't you? That's that's where it goes. Of course, and you walk away. Yeah, and uh, and. Magically, it gets um, delivered, mm. so obviously not. Um, I think um, there's probably not many developers in the world today that don't know about source control, uh, that aren't using source control. Um, but just in case anyone out there is listening and is not aware uh, of why you would use source control, um, have you ever been in that position where you started making changes to something, to, to a code base, um, and then you make a complete mess and you need to reverse out of it? Um, so if, you're, if your approach there is to uh, zip up the file system before you start, uh, you've rolled your own source control. But there are better ways of doing this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, as I mentioned before, with that, the partner landscape that we have with um, awesome tools uh, that you can use with the AWS um, services in order to do source control management, we also have built-in cloud native um, source control management with AWS code commit. So once you've written your code and you're ready to start um, doing some uh, dev test and, and deployment, um, you want to commit your code into the source code repository. Of course, again, Simon, you want to do some um, branching. We, we do we do um, support uh, pull requests and uh, and branching and all those all the collaborative things, things yeah. in, in Git. Yeah. Um, but it's fully managed Git basically at the end of the day. And and what that means is that it's a very quick and easy for you to to set up a source code repository with just one command line call. Or of course, you can script that with. Uh, CloudFormation. Um, but the, the great thing about CodeCommit is the integration it has with the rest of the tools. And we can't really talk about source code in isolation. We yeah. have to talk about the whole um, the tool cycle. Chain. Yeah, the, 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 the tool chain. The tool, cha uh, tool chain, yeah. So once we've got our source code written and checked into source control, we need some mechanism to deploy it into our target environments. And no, it's not just going to sit on the hard drive and then automatically be deployed. We need a tool for that. We've got a really great uh, relationship with our partner ecosystem. I mentioned at the top of the, the show, um, tools like the Atlassian Suite, um, BuildKite, CircleCI, lots of um, tools out there that, that you can use. Yeah. But use what makes sense for you and what you like. Absolutely. But we also have the cloud native tools that are provided by the AWS platform. So let's talk about AWS Code Pipeline. It's a continuous integration and continuous delivery service for fast, reliable application infrastructure updates. It can be configured to orchestrate uh, the build, the test, and the deployment of your code every time there's a change in the source control. So that integration is, is really tight. 
Um, so a pipeline in Code Pipelines, a um, you can consider it like a workflow construct, mm. and it describes how the source moves through the various phases um, to get to through to a, uh, a release. It integrates with the other tools we're going to talk about in a second, the the build phase, um, and also the deployment phase as well. But it is the orchestration layer. Yeah, and it can tie into things like obviously code commit as well. So events in code commit can trigger at the start of a pipeline, or GitHub as well, for example, could just start off. That workflow. And there's a whole lot of decision points along that workflow. You there know, are yeah. human interaction, non-human interaction, yep. uh, go no go decisions, yep. branches, all weird stuff. Yeah, exactly. So you can um, define what we call fa um, stages, and each of those stages produce artifacts. And you can run stages uh, inside each of the stages. They can run in parallel, uh, or they can uh, run in series. So you can have the artifact of one. Um, part of the action, uh, be the input to the next part mm. of the action. So you can build up some really complex workflows there. Um, if there are any uh, faults, the pipeline will stop. So you've got some uh, great visibility on, on what's going on there. Um, and so each of those actions that I'm talking about there, um, they can be a source provider. So you can integrate with um, GitHub. You can integrate with um, CodeCommit, obviously. Um, there can be a build provider or they can be a deployment provider or even a test provider. Yeah. Um, and as you said, um, in, uh, a manual step to allow somebody to actually step in and say, yep, I'm going to approve this to continue. So a gating mechanism there, which is, uh, which is key for some environments. Um, so you also have an invoke provider, and that's really cool because it means that at any point in the workflow, you can fire off a Lambda function to do anything that you need to do. Uh -huh. So if you want to, you could um, trigger an email to be sent or uh, drop a message on a Slack channel to tell everyone that a build is happening or a build has failed or you know, whatever. Put something up you, on your sort of your, 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 your wall dashboard. of screens, dashboards, yeah. or you could do some cool sound. Exactly. Anything you want. Can you imagine that? Yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't get annoying. Yeah. Um, so you, you can actually signal the pipeline to continue automatically as well. So you could actually set up your own uh, response to the message uh, via SNS yep. that gets sent when a pipeline is paused because it needs an approval. Um, you can actually um, integrate with that and you can set up your – it doesn't need to be an actual person to do it. Ah. You could run some synthetic tests externally or do whatever you want to do to actually kick the pipeline off again. So really um, highly visible and highly configurable uh, to actually move your, your source code through to your deployment um, targets. And the thing the thing with the pipeline that you mentioned that I think is important, you, you talked about things being able to be done differently. And you know, this, this pipeline concept, again, is you know, old as the hills type thing. Yep. The difference is you can have lots of these pipelines. You're not constrained by how many servers I have or how much underlying Absolutely. infrastructure resource I have, which has always been the perennial challenge for developers. You know, yeah. I don't have enough dev environments. I don't have enough build servers. It well, takes course, too long to do the build, blah, 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 yeah, blah, blah. that goes away in the cloud because there's, there's no such thing as I don't have enough. Yeah. Uh, you just need to stand up the, in, yeah. the infrastructure that you need. You, you can go as yeah. fast as you like. The other thing I like about the way um, Adobe's Code Pipeline works is firstly you get one free active pipeline per month. Every other pipeline you create is only a dollar per month, so it's kind of only trivial. Exactly. Yeah. That, you you spoiled you spoiled my review. Oh, sorry. But you're right. Sorry. But it's sorry. a good yeah. point. You can yeah. build up this like whole infrastructure of, of really robust and organized release processes, and not have to pay for them until you use it. Yeah. So again, this whole thing of oh, I've got to build my pipeline. It's running, doing nothing most of the time. Yeah. Yes, in this case, it's doing nothing most of the time and you're not paying for it until the exact moment you need it. Yeah, exactly. And if you're um, thinking in, in the more traditional way where you would have a cluster of um, build servers yes. working together yeah. and so you, somebody needs to feed and water that cluster of build servers and then when it's not being used in the middle of the night, it's still running. Okay? Yep. Yep. Now, with the case of Code Pipeline and these cloud-native services, as you just mentioned, if you're not paying for it when it's not running, um, and if it doesn't get used for six months, you're still not paying for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what that means is if you want to follow methodologies like 12-factor where you really should have a, a source code repository with one code base and that should have its own dedicated pipeline, yeah. 
Now, in the traditional way, that could potentially become expensive. Yeah. If yeah. you've got a thousand microservices and a thousand pipelines, uh, and they're yeah. all running through That's one prohibitive. box. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what happens when that uh, that build cluster goes down? Um, you are basically stuck. Yep. Um, so handing off that heavy lifting of feeding and watering the the build server or the pipeline and the, the, uh, all that goes away. And you, so you talked about compilation, and compilation is is uh, always has been a thing and continues to be a thing, and often it's uh, quite time consuming and resource hungry. And that's where AWS Code Build fits in. So maybe let's yeah. talk about how that makes things a bit easier. Yeah. So before we get to the actual deploying the software, we need to actually build that release artifact. And the code pipeline uh, is going to be able to manage that process for you, but it doesn't do the actual building. So yeah. AWS It's not code doing the build. work, it's doing the coordination. Exactly, yeah. So AWS Code Build is the component that actually does that. So fully managed cloud scale, obviously, um, where you only pay for the time it takes to actually do the build. So again, thinking of cost, um, if your build actually only takes 30 seconds to build, uh, you're paying on the uh, by the minute um, yeah. boundary. So, yeah. so what we actually do in code build is we stand up a container on the fly. So when you request a build or when code pipeline asks code build to, to build do something. A build, yeah. um, so what we do is we stand up a fresh container. It's in incredibly fast. They're, they're all ready to go. Yep. But it's a brand new container. So you're basically building against a clean environment every time. And you can run a series of uh, basically anything that you can run on a, a Linux um, instance, Amazon Linux instance. You can run uh, in code build. So if you imagine the build spec or the, the specification for what code build has to do is basically just a series of command lines, mm. which means that, Simon, you can run anything in there. You yeah. can do some linting. You can uh, call outs to uh, an external endpoint and pull in some additional data for testing. Uh, you can run the AWS CLI or the SAM CLI, or you can run any tool that you want to as long as it will run on Amazon Linux. And that means that um, not only do you uh, get to build your code and lint your code and test your code, but you also get to... Um, um, bring in any third-party tool that will make that work for you. So we're yeah. not again, we're not constraining you to the way that you need to work. And you've mentioned Linux, but also .NET Core on Windows also is a thing. Yes, it is absolutely. <laughs> so what you do is when you set up the the build, you actually choose the platform that you're targeting, so yep. Windows or, or or Linux, and then you get to choose the flavor of um, gotcha. of the environment that you want. So uh, a lot of um, choices that you you have in there, including again my favorite uh, .NET Core 2.1 on um, on Linux. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're actually uh, building a pipeline that's targeting Lambda, for example, and you want to use .NET Core 2, uh, all good. It's all all ready to go. And as these builds are taking place, of course, everything's being being logged appropriately in places like Amazon CloudWatch. Highly uh, visible. Very yeah. visible. You can encrypt everything, yep. does the key management for you. And the other nice thing is once the build process is done, that container just goes away. It does. You don't have to manage it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, really important that you mentioned about the logs, Simon, because you know if, if you're creating a build process, there is a bit of heavy lifting that you have to do because AWS can't know ahead of time how to build your software. You need to build, you know, yeah. define that yourself. Yeah. Now, the problem with that approach, though, is that um, you will make mistakes because you need to debug that process. Mm. So running, um, checking your build spec into source control and having that go through the pipeline every time in order to debug that process can be a little bit time consuming. So the great thing is that you can actually run the uh, code build um, container on your local laptop. Okay. So you can actually debug that locally. And in fact, I was doing this just yesterday. Um, I made a change to a build and I could not figure out why. <laughs> you broke the build, I didn't you? I broke the build and uh, I thought to myself, you know, this is going to take me a bit of time to continue to iterate um, check the code in and, and uh, or the build spec in, I should say, uh, and let that run through. Uh, you know, wait for the, those all those moving parts to run. Yeah, uh, it's quick, but still, it's not as quick yeah. as me running it on my laptop and isolating the problem. 
Um, and so, yeah, the the um, the code build um, environment running on your local uh, laptop just runs on Docker, and you can basically emulate the entire um, build process. Um, and it only took me a few minutes to figure out. Oh, whoops. Um, so yeah, that's good. Cool. That's good. Keep, keep that in mind. Yeah, and also you, you sort of you mentioned that that start from scratch. And the nice thing is there are some pre-configured pre-configured build environments, I should say. Um, for things like Java, Ruby, Python, Go, Node.js, Android, .NET Core, PHP, and Docker. So you're not starting from the clean sheet of paper. It's yeah. like here's one that you could, to your, to your point earlier, you could probably just cut and paste and yeah. change a few lines. Tweak, and, yeah. yeah, tweak the parts that make sense to your application. One of the other great things, Simon, is that you get to choose the underlying compute that runs the container that's uh, making your build. And so if you've got a lot of um, heavy computation to do in that compilation, uh, say it's C++, some big project you're building, you may need to increase the amount of um, compute that you have. So the great thing is that CodeBuild gives you a free tier and gives you 100 build minutes of build general one small every month. So 100 minutes. So if you want to play with it yep, um, just straight there. out of the box, it's it. ready to go. And that gives you three gig of memory with two vCPUs. So the other two options you have for compute are the Build General 1 Medium, which gives you 7 gig of RAM and 4 vCPUs for Linux um, and also for Windows. And the other one is the, the, the big guy is Build General 1 Large, and that gives you 15 gig of RAM and 8 vCPUs, again, for um, Windows and Linux. So you can, you can mix and match what you use. And I think this comes into a really important concept that I sometimes see get lost in the development cycle, which is what's often called time to value. And that's how quick do you go from someone on the business stakeholder or product management side saying, hey, we need feature X to customer using it in the software that you're building. And that time to value sort of end-to-end -end is, is broken up into you know, the time it takes to do the requirements and figure out what you're going to build and do the sprint and deploy and et cetera. But a big part of that is this build cycle of, you know, on the compilation, compilation fails, <laughs> yeah, integration test fails, et cetera. The more resource you can apply to that pipeline, the quicker it gets run. You're compressing that cycle. And this is why we are seeing customers who deploy uh, tens if not hundreds of times a day because they can yeah. <laughs> when they need to. And that time to value becomes important. And this is where this tweaking of the build resources is important, which you couldn't do before because you got to buy your build server once for the project, not... Yeah, and it may have had um, you know, many pipelines yes. in that one cluster. That's so true. You've, yeah. you've maximised, you, you've spent as much as you can to get the biggest box possible, yeah. and that's not really going to give you the right value for money. So um, great to have those options. So let's talk about the rubber hitting the road and getting the code out there. So I put it on my USB I put on my USB stick, I walked to the server. <laughs> Simon, we need to speak. Uh, um, well, you know... If I'm you having know, flashbacks. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Code Pipeline could help you there. I could run a Lambda function, which would actually, yeah. Um, so the component that we... Um, have in the AWS toolkit for uh, deployment is called AWS Code Deploy. And so what that is, is it's going to allow you to target containers. It's going to, um, uh, via ECS, for example, or it's going to be able to allow you to target uh, Lambda functions or even um, deploying into EC2 instances. And also now I might mention, this is a very recent one, is uh, S3 as well. So Absolutely. if you've got static web pages, which I'm a big fan of, yes, bingo yes. bango, in it goes. I was playing with that just yesterday ah, as well. Same project, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it makes it really easy. So what I didn't mention before about um, uh, being able to trigger the code pipeline is that you can actually trigger based on various um, uh, triggers such yeah. as uh, source code check-in or even files arriving in, in S3, for example. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, if you wanted to update a file in, in S3 and cause a deployment uh, to an S3 mm. static website, absolutely, that's that's doable. Um, but code deploy is a lot more than just pushing code yeah. out. Yeah. So code deploy...
employee, um, let's talk about the um, the EC2 instance uh, target, for example. Um, what it allows you to do is to run a, what's called an app spec file, and the app spec file will, um, has various lifecycle hooks, and it's going to allow you to script up what to do on the instance uh, prior to deployment and, and after deployment. There's, there's multiple steps that it has there. So let's say, for example, you're deploying a, a Windows service. Now, um, for the listeners who know how to deploy Windows services, it's not just a simple matter of copying the files over. You need to uh, stop the running service. Uh, you need to check that it's stopped. You may need to deregister the service if you're changing the interface. You then need to deploy the software. You need to then re-register the service and you need to start the service. Now, all of that you can do manually or you <laughs> could script up in the app spec file and the, use the various lifecycle hooks, um, post-deployment, uh, pre-deployment, et cetera, to actually do that. Um, but again, code deploy is much more than that. Code Deploy also allows you to do blue-green deployment with AWS Fargate and also Amazon ECS, which is fantastic. Um, it also allows you to target Lambda functions, as yep. I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and it will also allow you to do blue-green deployment with Lambda functions. Let's maybe define blue-green because it's been my experience that whilst there's a strong cohort in the developer community who know exactly what blue-green deployment is, there's also a reasonably large collection of people who have not come across it for various and reasons. And why would you even need it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So if you imagine, Simon, you have, um, let's let's keep it simple. You have yeah. one one machine. Yep. Um, you have one machine where you need to update some running software. Now, if that running software happens to be a web server and you have live traffic going to that web server, um, and of course, you would never have just one of anything in the cloud. I'm no, just we're just using this. it for the... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you are targeting that one server and you stop the uh, running web server and update um, the files, or, or you know, you need to make a change to it, at that point, there will be service disruption. Mm. And also, what happens if something goes wrong? How do you revert out of that? Are so, you trying to say that sometimes we make mistakes in deployments and things don't go quite like we thought? Not you, Simon. Oh, okay. I just want to... Okay. My personal yes. experience, yeah. <laughs> um, There are humans involved in this process, and whenever there are humans involved, people make mistakes, yeah. and we need to embrace that. You need to back it. Yeah. The, the ability to deploy quickly is completely built around the concept of being able to undo what you did really quickly. Yes, and that's the concept of safety. Correct. So um, being able to deploy quality software safely. Yes. So blue-green is uh, basically what it allows you to do is to say, I have multiple environments. Let's say we have two environments. Uh, they may be um, one instance or 20 instances behind each of those environments. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And what you end up doing is you deploy the new uh, software to the other environment and then you either switch over to it when you know it's working or you gracefully uh, migrate traffic over. Yeah. So there are various um, strategies that you can use. So let's talk specifically uh, about, I want to use a use case of um, Lambda. So what mm. Code Deploy allows you to do when you're using the safe Lambda deployments through the serverless application model is you basically specify, I want to update this Lambda function with some new um, a new version of the code um, and the Lambda function will be versioned automatically for you. Yep. And then what Code Deploy will do is it will slowly shift the traffic over using whichever strategy you decide. It will slowly shift the traffic over to the new version of the function. So let's say you used a, um, a, a strategy of uh, uh, 10% every uh, five minutes, mm. or you might want to use a linear um uh, approach, or you might want to do um, various other strategies for deployment. What will happen is that all of the traffic that's coming in targeting that Lambda function will be dispatched either to the old or the new version mm -hmm. based on the, pros uh, the progress of the deployment. So in the first five minutes, 10% of the traffic will go to the new version. Yeah. Now, what you also then do is you define some uh, some metrics, some uh, monitoring, yeah. some alerts. What does good look like? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because uh, until the thing warms up and it's running in the real environment, you may not know uh, mm. exactly mm. whether this change that you're making is going to work. Um, if at any time that function 
doesn't work, then that will trigger the alarm and then the rollback will happen. And that's why the blue-green uh, process is awesome because you don't need to quickly uh, make a change and continue to roll forward to fix the problem. Yeah. The rollback will be completely automatic. So it's very, very safe. And, and you're essentially rolling back the traffic aiming at the existing environment that was already there that has been running for however long exactly. that no one has touched. Yes. <laughs> Whereas yes. if you consider probably what a lot of people are familiar with where you've, you know, you've, you've got the outage, you've gone to the server that you're updating, you've changed some libraries, you've changed configuration. Change everything. Yeah. yeah. Something goes wrong and now you've got to remember what you did backwards under pressure. Um, yeah. yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> this now, is a really nice way to do it. And then you can also have that uh, newly deployed uh, environment that you still have there for forensic analysis to say, well, I deployed to this new environment. It didn't work. Why let's, didn't it work? Yeah, I can test against it. I can have a bit of it. Oh, this didn't go in or, you know, there was yeah. this error in this obscure log over here that I didn't notice. Yeah, like, yeah. And, of course, if you're working in an environment where everything is automated and everything is scripted, the chances of this happening are very, very low. Yep. Mistakes do happen, of yep. course. Um, but if there's any manual intervention anywhere, then this is uh, a real safety net. Uh, and one of the – you talked about, you know, the the automation pieces. One of the, the metrics I've seen people use successfully in these types of deployments is not so much did the deploy work or not, which, you know, by this stage you would hope hope that you've got a successful deploy, codes running, tests are passed, et cetera. It's where there's been unexpected latency at the customer end. So we've deployed a change and a transaction that used to take, you know, half a second is now taking five seconds. Yep. You should have first the instrumentation on that anyway. But if you've made that deployment go, well, we've made this change and maybe maybe we've dropped a, an index on a database that we shouldn't have or something's changed, that's often the more common reason to roll back versus I deployed it and it just broke. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and again, if you haven't automated that index on the, the database, yeah. um, then how will you know? Yeah, um, so, yeah. Um, but you did bring up a very interesting point there, Simon. I mean, blue-green deployment on a database is not really – like in a mm, running production mm, database is not mm. really something that we see. Um, and so uh, tip for the, the listeners out there that uh, the code deploy is going to do a fantastic job of, of, and safe job of deploying your software, but you need to take – Take additional care with your your live databases, yeah. um, and this is where testing is incredibly important. And what we generally see customers do is make as many small changes as possible, yep. as often as possible, yep. and all changes to the database are uh, backward compatible. Exactly. So, in other words, you know, if you missed an index um, or if you dropped the table, uh, you don't want to. That's a bad. <laughs> yeah, scenario. you can't do that. Yeah, <laughs> you can't do that. Uh, so you want to make incremental changes on your on your data store. Now, the great thing is that you can handle the deployments and the updates of your database during the deployment phase Correct. because everything is scriptable. So Correct. it's not like you have to use a different mechanism. It's just that you need to think differently about mm. blue-green when it comes to databases. And another really uh, useful pattern I've seen done successfully is where you deploy the database change a generation ahead of the code change. Yes. So that goes in, goes into production. It's already there. It's yes. not being used because the code's not there yet. Yep. But you know you haven't broken anything at the data layer before yep. you roll the the change in. Absolutely. Another strategy is to deploy the code that's going to use it, but don't make it um, visible to the yep. end user yep. and then have a back door so that you can test it uh, and you know, run your automated testing when, but before the, the customers actually get to. Yeah, or feature flag it or have selective feature flags yes. as a whole. Yeah. We could go down that rat hole yeah. of different approaches, which yeah. we're not going to, but you yeah. did tease something. You mentioned something called uh, AWS SAM. Yes, you picked that up. The the uh, the service application model. Uh, so the the service application model. I'd like you to think of it, Simon, as an extension to CloudFormation. Yeah. So SAM itself is not something new and different to CloudFormation. It is in addition to CloudFormation. It's an extension of. So it's basically um, you run it. The uh, you, you you declare a namespace, which is a transform. Uh, on the CloudFormation template. And when you run it through the um, uh, the, the SAM CLI, 
um, it will emit canonical cloud formation. So it's not like you can't, it's a completely separate template. It's actually cloud formation plus SAM extensions is a yeah. good way to think of it. Yeah. Um, and it's going to make it really easy for developers to do some things that are a little uh, verbose in cloud formation. Yep. So in only a couple of lines of SAM, you can set up an API gateway, an API gateway deployment, and all the relevant permissions for it to call into a Lambda function to support a REST endpoint um, and even spin up a DynamoDB table. Mm. And all of the heavy lifting of, like, for example, the permissions, which we know and love, but yep. it is something They're important, but they're fiddly. <laughs> they're a bit fiddly. Um, that is all um, declarative in, and uh, yes, CloudFormation itself is declarative, yeah, yeah. but it's upper layer. It's, yeah. it's another abstraction. Um, it's really great for um, deploying Lambda functions with triggers like um, S3 bucket triggers, or as I mentioned, um, API gateway endpoints or SNS uh, triggers. Um, it really makes it very simple for you to declare what, um, what you actually want and, and let the environment sort that out for you um, during deployment. So one thing you need to bear in mind is that you need to use the uh, AWS CLI or the SAM CLI to process that template prior to deployment. Mm -hmm. And we do that using the AWS CloudFormation package command or the SAM package command. They are actually the same um, uh, piece of functionality. Um, and once you've called the package command, it will emit the canonical CloudFormation template, which you can then use AWS CloudFormation Deploy, to, run, to, to run actually for. deploy it, yeah. What about for in terms of local deployment or local testing? Well, this is the really cool thing for developers because um, we, we want to be able to test our Lambda functions locally. And I mentioned earlier that you can do this in the IDEs, but you can also use the SAM CLI um, standalone on your desktop to test your Lambda functions. So the SAM CLI will basically emulate the AWS Lambda environment. Now, it's not going to give you the ability to do performance testing because your hardware is going to run yeah. differently to Lambda. Okay, yeah. So this is a functional test. Yeah. So uh, what it allows you to do is you can actually emulate the API gateway calling a Lambda function, all from running uh, on, on SAM CLI directly. So what it does is it reads the um, template file, the SAM template that you have in the directory, and it will stand up all of the API gateway endpoints and allow those API gateway endpoints to call the Lambda functions that you have written, and it allows you to do that all on, in, in that um, in that local environment. Um, but what you can also do, something that's really cool, is you can um, stand up the uh, Lambda endpoint itself. So I'll give you a scenario, Simon. Let's say you have a Lambda function which does a synchronous invoke of another Lambda function. Mm -hmm. Let's say you have that scenario. Yep. Or you have a web client that, that has the right credentials and it wants to call the Lambda function directly. Yep. How do you test that without deploying the Lambda function itself? Yeah. yeah. So what we um, we can do in SAM CLI is we can use the um, start Lambda command. And what that will do is it will bring up the Lambda endpoint um, and it'll appear as localhost 3001. It'll allow you to actually call that endpoint from the AWS SDK as if it were calling the real Lambda environment. Nice. So you can actually run those tests uh, on your local environment. But think about it, when I mentioned before about code build and you can run any CLI command that runs on Amazon Linux, you could actually do the same thing inside your code build script uh, and actually do local testing inside your CI/CD pipeline of the Lambda function prior to it actually being deployed. So you're doing a, a, cool. a, a, an integration test with external components, but you're doing it internally before you do it externally. I couldn't have said it better myself, <laughs> uh, before the thing is even deployed. And so you wow. could set up um, tests in that Lambda function so it won't even be deployed if those tests fail. And I think one of the really important things here, Simon, is you want to be able to make sure that, you know, as all good developers write unit tests, all good developers do integration testing before they check their code in. Of course. And maybe that's all done through um, pull requests and, you know, all that um, really cool stuff. But at the end of the day, the pipeline is the mechanism that is going to protect you as a developer from deploying 
a lower quality code, let's just yeah. say. Unintended consequential exactly, type stuff. Yes. The, the other good thing about SAM is, is of course, it is a, a sort of templated language. So it, it also goes into source control. There yes. are libraries of those that you can, again, download and use, yeah, which, is uh, which means you can share information, you can share it in your team, you can share it more broadly in the community. So it's a good communication mechanism as well. Yeah, and also to get you up and running quickly as well, you can use the the SAM CLI uh, to actually um, provide you with blueprints or boilerplate code. Yeah. Um, so just doing a SAM init command, um, de declaring the language that you want to um, use. So, for example, I don't know, .NET Core. Yeah. Um, and it will stand up a Hello World application for you, uh, which has a, um, a Lambda function and an API gateway all ready to go, including the Visual Studio solution and the project file and um, uh, a test uh, project as well. So all ready to all go. All good to go. So this is great because it's quite opinionated, which means that if you're just getting started with these tools, you can actually get the Hello World up and running and, and actually start coding and you've already got best practice. Exactly. And best best practice is a good thing. And you sort of touched on this concept of, of getting rid of our, our old friend undifferentiated heavy lifting. And we've talked through a lot of things. We've talked about uh, code pipeline, code deploy, code commit. Um, sounds, sounds, sounds great. Lots of things to use, but now I've got to assemble them. Surely there's a better way that I could get going. Well, sometimes when you're looking at the road ahead and you're thinking, how am I ever going to get there? There's so <laughs> much that I already need to do so much and now I need to learn all this stuff. So we recognise that and uh, we want to make it um, really easy for developers to get up and running. And so that's where AWS CodeStar comes in. So you can think of CodeStar as an, uh, an orchestration tool for getting you up and running with um, best practice uh, templates for various languages and various, um, I guess, uh, application types like websites, web applications, web services, and even Alexa skills. Yeah. Um, yeah. So CodeStar uh, has these project templates that give you the the source code. They give you the build spec file, so mm -hmm. it will automatically um, build in Code Build for you. It actually sets Code Build, Code Pipeline, uh, Code Deploy, Cloud Formation. All of that will the be set up. Everything for we've you. talked about is yeah. just like. Out of the box. A couple of um, button clicks. Um, it will also set up a, a an AWS code commit or a GitHub repo for you. You can actually connect to a, a GitHub repo if you um, decide to use, um, uh, you know, your choice of, of, of source control. Um, and it also gives you the options for connecting to Visual Studio or um, Eclipse. Mm -hmm. And also the really cool thing is uh, it will stand up a an AWS Cloud9 IDE for you if you choose. Yeah. You can opt into this. And when you run that IDE as part of your project, it will automatically connect to the repo and pull in the source code, which is like a hello world template for whatever uh, the application is that you're creating. And you are up and running and ready to go in just a couple of minutes and you haven't had to learn anything. That's You've, pretty cool. Yeah, it's bootstrapped your, your um, being productive straight away. So yeah, your, your, your process of going from idea to starting to code is literally minutes. In fact, you could probably press the button, go downstairs, get coffee, come upstairs, commence. And it's done. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it also gives you a single pane of glass dashboard view of your project, and um, it integrates with uh, uh, Atlassian Jira, so oh, you've got okay. um, ticket management there yep. as well. Yep. Um, and of course, security is really important, so it's uh, it's got built-in role-based uh, access uh, through IAM, following best practices. Um, and again, because you've got the integration there with AWS Cloud9, um, if you wanted to um, bring in uh, other members of the team into the project, you can do that can, inside yeah. uh, CodeStar. So as you well. can go from your your little idea into hey would you like to help me yes <laughs> here's a link <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so, yeah, really um, a cool tool there. Um, so you've got lots of options in your toolkit, I, I think, here, Simon. Um, and uh, CodeStar is a really good way to start. And you may find that uh, once you've got your head around things like the build spec file and the app spec file and those um, things, those new things that you have to learn, yeah. once you've got your head around those, you're ready to um, take steps into using some of the other tooling, like exactly. Sam CLI, for example. Exactly. You can do it the way you like when you're ready to do it, which is great. So I, I think we've covered a great deal of ground and maybe maybe next time you come on, we'll talk a bit about microservices and some specifics around that. But for now, Adam, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Simon. I look forward to seeing you again. Absolutely. And thanks everyone for listening. We do love to get your feedback at podcast at amazon.com. And now you've got lots and lots and lots more tools to be able to help you keep on building.